Ours is an industry where actually Amazon has really underperformed, if you, if you look at the figures. And there's a variety of reasons for that. But I guess uh, ultimately, you know, there will be probably one dominant player in, in Europe, which is Suplus, and there will be a dominant online player in the US, which is probably going to be Chewy. And then we'll see what's going to happen. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Welcome to episode 14 of the Nua Capital podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting Florian Soibert, co-founder of Max Berg Capital Partners and previously co-founder and CFO of Zoo Plus, Europe's largest online retailer for pet supplies. So this is a very interesting um, space, Florian. I'd love it first if you could kind of trace back your journey. I know you started at JP Morgan before co-founding Zoo Plus. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about what that move was like and kind of trace that back to uh, today, Maxberg Capital Partners. Sure, uh, uh, pleasure to be with you. Um, well, in the you know, I studied in the mid 1990s in, in the UK, and late 1990s, 98 to be precise, I started in London working for JP Morgan in fixed income, so financial markets. But at the time, obviously, uh, the internet started to you know become really significant, and together with a group of friends. We really, you know, we wrecked our brains to find something that we could do on the entrepreneurial side um, in, in, in Europe. So at the time, B2C obviously was all the vogue. Um, and we analyzed, you know, the, the, the major niche markets in Europe that were not taken at the time. And that's how we ended up looking at pet supply. So it was really purely by chance being a, an, you know, an attractive niche market. Um, with interesting characteristics, and we decided, okay, let's give it a go. That was June 1999 in Germany with setting up a B2C retail in the pet supply space. So that's really how it started, um, and it's been like a, a you know the, the, a long journey uh, for all of us. Uh, I did it until 2000, end of 2013. By then, the company had been listed on the stock market. We were doing a run rate of about 600 million in sales. We were profitable. And I kind of switched to the investing side, which I'd always been active in, um, uh, and set up Maxberg uh, together with two partners, which is a European-focused private equity house nowadays managing roughly 1 billion uh, euros in, in, in total assets. Um, and um, on the side, being also, you know, fairly active as a, as a private investor. So that's how it, how it uh, you know, ended up after 20 years uh, in, in, in online retail and, and, and investing. So it's come, it's come full circle, it seems. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So what was the space like in, in, in the late 90s, I guess? Um, there's a bit of an elephant in the room where there's a, a U.S. counterpart that, uh, you know, did not fare as well. Um, maybe we could unpack that a little bit. I know that, yeah, you know, sure. Pets.com is essentially like a cautionary tale for a lot of founders. Um, and then I was hoping to also get a little bit of your perspective on, on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, <laughs> that was really the curse for all of us in the beginning. Um, because um, uh, what actually happened is that, you know, when we started, we didn't really copy a U.S. model. We really started at the same time than a few other competitors started in the same space uh, in the U.S. So maybe just one word about the business model. Essentially, we're selling all types of pet foods and accessories for dogs, cats, etc. online. Very simple. Um, it's a big market, you know. Generally, in, in, in the, the Western markets, people tend to spend more on pets than they spend, for example, on 
children, for example, or on yeah. uh, sports and so on. So it's, it's a niche market of about 35 billion in Europe, um, roughly twice the size actually in the US. Now in the US, what happened is that there were, you know, massively VC funded companies uh, cropping up uh, in the, during 99, 2000. And, and, and the reality is actually quite simple. Whilst we only had very, very limited means and effectively, you know, had to bootstrap the company right from the start, um, those companies were really able to afford huge amounts of money going into marketing, you know, going into overdrive. You know, at the time, everybody was saying, okay, you raise the money when you need it, uh, and which effectively meant that you didn't really have to uh, be particularly careful about operational excellence, about what you were actually doing, at which you know cost you were actually acquiring customers. I remember there was a time when in, in in Germany we were acquiring customers at you know two three euros a customer, whilst pets uh, pets dot com uh, was spending five hundred dollars per customer. So it, it really there were metrics around that simply would never add up. That was pretty clear to us right from the start. Nevertheless, Pets.com IPO'd, I think, in late 2000, and they went bust a year later. So that was disastrous for us in one way, because, you know, obviously it meant that, you know, there was no no sane venture capitalist at that point in time would have ever invested in the pet supply space, whether it's in the US or in Europe. On the other hand, which was really, you know, in the end good for us, it forced us to really focus on the operational business. And that's how we essentially survived the, the dot-com bust in 2001 and enabled us to, you know, um, get out of it. And by 2003, 2004, uh, granted, our, after having invested about 10 million in the business overall, the business was pop profitable on about 20 million in annual sales. So uh, it was really like a, a you know, a hard battle, um, but uh, ultimately we got out of it stronger. And in the US, um, this happened later. I mean, we have competition now there as well. But, you know, for about 10 years, the market in the U.S. was essentially dead in our space. That's interesting. I, so looking at, um, so you mentioned competition coming from the U.S. And I feel that it also looks like some of the more traditional or let's say e-commerce slash traditional retail that have digitized are looking to come into the space as well and get a, a slice of the pie. So looking at you know, someone like Amazon, Walmart, et cetera. Where, where do you see, I mean, you've been in the space for quite a while. Where do you see mm. pet care going next? Um, some comparables are going into telehealth and different variations of that. Mm. Um, mm. It's, it's, uh, what do you think is, is the move from here? Well, I, I think there's two parts to the answer. I mean, one is, when you actually look at the size of the online market right now, it's about you know 10 to 15 percent of the overall market. Zooplus today is doing about two billion in annual sales. Now uh, the big player um, in, in in the US called Chewy is doing about four four or five times that. Still being negative actually on on the earnings side. Um, yeah. Also publicly listed, I think about 40 billion market cap. Um, so, uh, so there's still loads of room to grow simply by being a, a an offline retail, an online retailer, sorry, and then cutting, you know, meat out of the the offline retailers. So that's that's part one of the answer. Part two, obviously, is that the market overall is evolving far more into services, um, you know, grooming, um, um, medical services. It's still a highly regulated market. So, I mean, for example, in 
in, in Europe, it's much more difficult to, 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 to distribute online um, a, a, a medical product for a dog than it is for a human being, strangely enough. Um, so um, it's still highly regulated, but you know all these teleservices that we do see in the human space, whether it's telemedicine, whether it's you know uh, grooming, coaching, whatever it is, you know mm-hmm. um, higher end accessories products, um, uh, that's where the market is. But it's it, it, you know I'm not telling you that the market will completely change over the next 10, 15 years. It will evolve, you know. But at the core. The, the core battle will will still be, um, you know, let's grow bigger, let's get market share, um, and 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 let's become, which actually has just happened for Zooplus in Europe, let's become the number one player in the industry, whether it's online or offline. Uh, I guess in the US, Chewy has still a way to go, um, but the dynamics are clearly there, and um, I think for everyone uh, involved in the industry right now, it's, it's it's actually clear that you know online will carry the day. It will take a few more years, um, and that's why the incumbents obviously are either cooperating. And Chewy is still partially owned by uh, PetSmart, which is yeah. the largest offline player in the US. Um, I mean, Amazon is becoming more active in the space, but um, I would say ours is an industry where actually Amazon has really underperformed. If you if you look at the figures, and there's a variety of reasons for that, um, um, but um, uh, I guess. Uh, Ultimately, you know, there will be probably one dominant player in, in Europe, which is Zooplus, and there will be a dominant online player in the US, which is probably going to be Chewy. And then we'll see what's going to happen. So I want to compare and contrast a little bit between um, the MENA region and maybe what you've seen in Europe. Um, so I have to ask, as a, as a pet owner, I think most of us here uh, within the team have either one or two dogs, and we are seeing particularly post or during 2020, there's a sharp rise in smaller DNVB brands catering to dogs. There's definitely a rise in pet ownership. People have adopted either their first, second or third dog in the last year. Mm. But that's paralleled with a lot of these smaller brands either, um, you know, offering uh, customized harnesses, etc. But very interestingly, also in terms of foods, so so, mm. you know, um, there's a big, I guess, movement towards raw. So we've seen a number of brands launch within that space. Uh, more maybe a human grade uh, uh, pet foods that's being offered in the market. Is that something that you've uh, you've seen as well? Uh, I mean, what course, does that look course. like? I mean, Yes, of course. And uh, bear in mind that 70-75% of the market is foods. So um, accessories might, you know, grab the limelight and they might be more interesting. But the food market is the market where it's really happening. And what you see there is a, you know, what we call humanization of, of you know, the whole industry or, or, the, yeah. or the, the, the products within the industry, which means that all the trends uh, that you would see in the, in the human space, like organic, Whole, whole foods, um, uh, you know, um, high quality, um, even vegan or, you know, whatever, whatever you name it, you know, you will find, you know, in the, in the, in the pet space as well. Whether this makes sense or not is a different, uh, different question, to be honest. True. Um, it's probably most important, most of overall, it's, it's, it's a marketing <laughs> topic that can be exploited. 
Uh, but th this will continue. And um, um, the market is growing in the, in, in the niche areas and it's growing in the, in, in the premium areas, which means dry foods, which means specific foods, breed-specific foods, age-specific foods, and all the, all the trends, all the fats that you would see in the, you know, in the human space sooner or later get, get replicated in the, in, in, in the, in the, in the, pet, in the pet food space. Um, uh, and then obviously there's, there's specific trends, um, you know, raw foods, you know, raw yeah. meat, you mentioned that one, um, that's actually in decline already in Europe. Um, cause medically speaking, it's probably not the best thing to do to your pet, but, uh, people believe in it. There's a trend towards, um, you know, what they call basically, um, <laughs> Like, almost like crypto style, like like raw, as they like a like a like a wild animal would have eaten yeah. ten fifteen thousand years ago. Now all this can be debatable, can be debated, um, uh, but um, it's happening, and people, you know, people love to hear these stories. They love to hear these marketing um, um, <laughs> pitches, and that's why the industry overall is growing at three four percent annually. And obviously, dog ownership, cat ownership is growing. <laughs> And at least in the in the advanced economies, and this will continue as well. You know, households tend to get smaller, and uh, they, on the other hand, they, they 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 tend to keep more pets, which might be a rather sad thing to say about society in general. But that's the way it is. So you, you touched on something that's um, that we've been kind of discussing a lot as well. There's a divide between what's being marketed to you as a consumer and what's actually good for your pet. And there's very little information. I mean, there's more information now online, right? But there's the, 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 there's very little information that's accessible for you to form uh, a more informed opinion. How is that regulated? How is the food space uh, for pets regulated? Because um, mm. my understanding, which perhaps is you know pretty basic, but there are certain things that um, uh, you know don't need to be mentioned on packaging labels, correct? Which could be not very mm. healthy for your pet. So how, what's, what does that structure look like? Well, that's true. I mean, um, uh, as far as labeling is concerned, there's far less regulation than human space. But what's actually interesting is that um, the ingredients that go into the foods in the first place are much, well, basically are regulated on par with, with human nutrition. Why is that? Um, it's because um, under this whole regularity field, you will also find cattle breeding, you know, the, the, the typical, you know, meat producing uh, industries here in Europe, and it's the same in the US. And these are highly, highly regulated. Um, just think of, you know, mad cow disease in the 1990s and all the after effects. So uh, the, the truth really is that, you know, the quality of the animal foods uh, in the pet supply space is probably as high as any human food you would find in a supermarket. The, the, the labeling obviously is different. And mm -hmm. this is what makes it possible for the big um, branded goods uh, um, or FMCG manufacturers, you know, to, to tell these stories and to, but to develop these, 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 these markets with, with, with good storytelling, you know, everything that's, that I've just mentioned before. So um, the answer is yes and no. I mean, the food, the, food, the, the quality is, 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 is there, uh, um, but, you know, the regulatory, the labeling um, probably doesn't always re reflect that. I want to I wanna zoom out of the pet care space a little bit and dig into your perspective on the evolution of tech um, and perhaps maybe digitizing certain industries across Europe. Where have you seen some of the challenges 
particularly across healthcare, e-pharma. I know these are a little bit tricky. They're heavily regulated. Uh, it's it's complex. Biology is complex in, in, in the nature of it. So I'd love to kind of um, get an overview from your side on what you've seen. Well, I think that the, the biggest um, the biggest stumbling block per se in Europe is it's obviously it's a fragmented market. You know, it's not like the US where you have like 300 million individuals or consumers or whatever, and you have one market and one set of regulations. So you have the European Union, but you have obviously also countries like Switzerland, Norway, etc., and the UK who are not part of that. So that's the first, and you have, you know, whatever, 10, 15 relevant uh, national languages that come into it as well. So it's, it's a highly fragmented market, and it still is to some degree, and that's the healthcare space, for example, regulated on a national level. Um, so that's, that makes it very, very difficult for European champions uh, to emerge. Uh, so it's very difficult to scale. So, um, you know, the, everything that you've seen in the, in the digitization space in the healthcare sector in the US has happened in Europe with a, with a much, much slower speed. And that's a big um, challenge. So um, when you look at companies like, you know, for example, you know that I'm on the board of Zurose. Yeah. Um, we when we look at the European market, we're not looking at one European market. We're looking at Germany, we're looking at France, we're looking at Spain, etc. Or even in the online retail, and I'm not talking about, you know, digital healthcare now, I'm just talking about online retail for, you know, pharmaceutical products. We have 10, 15 different sets of regulations. Now, um, you take that to the digital healthcare provisioning. Um, and then obviously, um, uh, scaling becomes even more difficult, you know, because you have a far more complicated, far more difficult product, you know, uh, yeah. whether it's online doctor services or, or, or you know, or, you know, um, or, or whatever it is, or app-based um, uh, service provisioning. So that's, that's really what makes it so tricky. It's not that people are less interested in, in, in the products per se. So in terms of navigating expansion across these markets, how does... How does one go about it? I mean, you have done it before with Zoo Plus. You're currently present in over 30 markets, I understand. So do mm. you, you know, what's the best way to look? Uh, what's the best way to go for it? The, the, yeah, the, the, uh, A, obviously cannot ignore regulation, you know, so yeah. <laughs> sadly as it is. But uh, now the, the only way forward um, in, in a situation like that is, is, is to prioritize and to look at, look at the big markets first. Uh, and then, uh, you know, try to take it step by step. So it took us probably, you know, 15 years to have a, an on par, you know, offering in a country like Norway, which we have today, mm -hmm. uh, which we didn't have five or 10 years before, because as a market in itself, it's too small. It's too expensive to, to adjust our offering. Um, it's too expensive from a tax, from a customs, from, a, from a regulatory, but also from a customer service perspective, you know, I mean, it's, it, just anecdotal evidence. It's it's actually when you know not that easy to find customer care personnel, and we're doing all our customer care services out of Eastern Europe. Um, in Eastern Europe, who speak Norwegian, you know, or who speak yeah. Portuguese or Spanish, etc. So um, you know, um, only once you have a certain size and scale, you can actually really tackle all these issues. Um, and that's why simply, you know, things take longer, but you have to focus on the markets first where you can scale most easily. I think that's the answer. Um, uh, don't hope for a, 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 a homogeneous pan-European market anytime soon. It's just not going to happen. That's, uh, that's what we're experiencing. 
so looking at e-pharma for a second, because um, you mentioned you were on the board of Zorosa. While prepping for the episode, I noticed that there's, it seems like innovation across e-pharma has started to go a little bit upstream. So rather than just uh, e-pharma, maybe e-prescriptions, but sort of moving maybe a little mo- a little bit more towards uh, trials, uh, drug discovery, uh, uh, leveraging AI. Yeah, but um, uh, but to add some 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 water to the wine, so to speak. <laughs> Not sure whether this is uh, relevant for our Saudi uh, listeners now, but. Um, uh, it's still, I mean, e-prescription in itself, which you just mentioned, is, you know, <laughs> it's just being introduced in Europe. So we're just at the start there. But yes, when we look at other issues, you know, where is the where is the most need for digitization? It's really when you look at people who are chronically sick, people who are, you know, who do have special needs that go beyond what they can get from their local pharmacy, um, uh Maybe in combination with, with with online medical services, et cetera, um, but also in, in, in partnership uh, with what uh, what we can do with, with the, you know with the big pharma companies in the development of new products. Um, there's a lot of stuff that can be done, you know, in in in, 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 in the digital world. Um, but again, it's a question of you know what 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 you know what you're allowed to do. Really, yeah. I mean, we do a lot of stuff in the diabetics space. We do a lot of stuff um, in the in the uh, weight loss space where we have partnered with some of the big players, and they're extremely interested, obviously, in getting uh, consumer data from our side, which we can, obviously, in, in a data protective, uh, conforming way, um, uh, which we can provide, and um, that makes it much easier to for them to 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 tailor their products to where the market really is. So it's it's really is it's, it's a triple win win. It's a win for the for the ultimate consumer, it's a win for us, and it's a win for the big pharma um, um, companies and the, the developers of those products. So, follow-up question to that, um, and not to poke the bear, essentially, but um, when it comes to tra- the more traditional stakeholders, what has the appetite been like um, to to be more exposed to these technologies, to maybe open up access a little bit more? Um, I mean, it's. Let's start with the positive um, 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 uh, with the positive aspects. I mean, um, I think it's been welcomed by the big um, insurance companies, by the big you know providers, or at least those who ultimately pay for it. It's been welcomed by the by the by the industry and the the, the pharmaceutical industry per se. Now, where we really see a lot of um, obstacles and where we see a lot of skepticism, unfortunately, because I think it's completely unjustified. Is on the on the on the on the doctor side, and it's on the on the on the, on the pharmacy side. Um, obviously, they feel encroached. Um, uh, they fear a more open, a more competitive market. That's an open secret. Um, and obviously, there there is still a lot of hesitancy to 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 move along. But look, I mean, as you cannot stop, you know, online retail from happening because the consumer <laughs> simply wants it. Um, you will not be able to stop um, the online provisioning of, of, of medical services in whatever form to the ultimate consumer. Because when you look at the market overall, you know, I mean, 60% of the total market volume is chronic diseases. And these people who are suffering, you know, they don't care whether they get their 
their, their, their medical um, provisionings, whether they get their medical advice, whether they get it online or offline, but they want to get it fast, they want to get it reliable. And I would argue that the digital provisioning in many areas is just far more um, uh, efficient um, uh, in that respect. And, 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 and you know, people know that and more and more, and they, 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 they have these positive experiences, but telemedicine, which is growing rapidly all over Europe, um, and this will continue. Nobody can stop that. I mean, that's an illusion. Yeah, we've seen something to that effect, I think, in the region, particularly across um, Egypt, when there was a protest by the Union of Pharmacists. I might be getting it a little bit wrong, but I remember it was to block a certain um, transaction with a company operating in an adjacent space that was um, actually selling medicine uh, online. So it's interesting to see how that will develop in the region as well. I think we're getting to a place where it's more collaborative and less um, defensive, I guess, and less reactive. But we've still got some ground to cover, I think, as um, as everyone is a little bit more exposed to the other uh, counterparts' mindsets. Yes, but I mean, at the end of the day, part of the reality, of course, is as well that you know, if you are, if you own a pharmacy, an offline pharmacy, you are threatened by by online pharmacies and online provisioning. Um, but you know, when you look at the big uh, medical insurance companies, they obviously want to save money, and they want to get make just make sure that you know what their you know customers need gets to them as quickly and as reliably as possible. And if that means online provisioning, um, there will be online provisioning, whether you know the local pharmacist likes it or not. That's the reality. Um, so, a question on. Perhaps uh, reflecting on your work at Maxberg, um, I've noticed that you tend to look at companies that are either cloud-based or building an infrastructure around that. So I wanted to sort of trace back, um, maybe talk a little bit about your interest in that space and how perhaps some of these companies are building the new tech infrastructure across Europe. Yes. Yeah. I mean, let's let's start from a really macro, from a big macro view. I mean, when we had the when you look at the last 30 years in, in digital or last 40 years, you know, we started with the big IBMs, mainframes, then we had the, the personal computer, we had MS-DOS, uh, Microsoft, um, which then in a way, you know, uh, evolved into what the internet is today. And then on top of that, we had all the, um, uh, now the cloud services, which you know, the, the, the idea of the cloud and the way it, it can be used, uh, which obviously had a really revolutionary, you know, uh, impact on, on on many areas, and and now I I think actually the next step will be everything that's related to 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 the blockchain technologies. So um, you know that that's our long term view, and that's why we believe that whatever is cloud related, and even blockchain, which we also look into, we haven't made a, 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 any any investment so far. This is really where you know there will be where the growth will be in the next 10, 20, 30 years, um, and where the most exciting businesses will will emerge in the next 10, 20, 30 years. Um, where exactly that will be, nobody is quite <laughs> sure at the moment. But this was, this is really the logic behind our investment um, focus in that space. Um, so uh, obviously we had a major shareholding in Zooplus, which we just sold six weeks ago because Zooplus was taken over by Helmut Friedman and EQT. But yeah. um, uh, 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 now we're looking at these small, nimble players that have some kind of product offering that's that's that, that's cloud relevant or that's provided through the clouds, which means that they can scale extremely fast. 
um, and 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 again, as as maybe a little bit as in pet supplies, you know, players that are operating in a highly defensible niche in a small niche market, um, um, but um, uh, where you know we believe that there there will not be any head-on competition in the foreseeable future. Let's say from the from the likes of Salesforce, SAP, Oracle, whoever. Yeah. Um, so. We've been fairly, I would say, successful with that, um, and and hope, hopefully we'll continue to be so. Um, and um, you know, there's when you look at Europe and you compare it to the US, we're probably three to five years behind in most most areas. So yes. it's actually quite easy to, to to look at the overall market and 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 and, and see what, what what's still out there, where you can still you know you know have great companies that are you know still you know still haven't haven't grown that massively that are still about to scale where you still see valuations that are probably a little bit more attractive than than what you would see with bigger deals uh, that are out there at the moment so i mean we're a small fund you know we you know with our latest you know fund now we will be at about a billion in total um total um assets and the management about half that we have we have deployed so far so there's uh, you know, um, uh, our average ticket, equity ticket, is probably only ten to twenty million overall. Maybe a little bit higher, twenty to thirty million nowadays. But you know, we we're able to to look at small players, um, mm-hmm. and I think that really differentiates us from from the big, whatever you know, KKRs, EQTs of this world who have to be do the big deals. It's interesting because I think that's that's definitely something that our markets have in common. Um, we are also a few years behind maybe global comparatives. And I think what we've seen, you know, work well is adapted, like replicas, but that are adapted to our markets and culturally adapted as well. Um, and so there is that kind of buffer to see what has worked, what business models have fared better, and then to learn from the failures that we see on the global market as well. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, people will, you know, tend to deride that as kind of, you know, copycat models, but the reality is, no, it's different. It's, these are, these are, you know, you know, very, very, very nimble players who are, you know, able to adapt very quickly, operate in smaller niche markets. And uh, it's, it's, it, it takes different skills to do that successfully. And um, these are the players we're looking at. Absolutely. And there's a d- very different set of challenges as well, I would say. But what's interesting is that we've also started seeing more global investors looking at our markets. And I know that's something that's also um, that's also something that perhaps some European companies have seen. There's much more interest from uh, the Tigers, the Sequoias uh, in the region. We've seen a number of rounds recently that include these sort of larger brand names. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, underlying that trend obviously is, is is the reality that all these players are sitting on a, on an enormous amounts of cash which they yeah. have to invest. So they they one one aspect is they they look at smaller deals. Another aspect is they look at public market deals, which EQT didn't do five years ago, at least not in the technology space. Now they're doing that. Yeah. Um, and obviously they look at other geographies and that's just the same that has probably happened in Europe over the last 10 years. I can see happening now in your space. Um, it's, it's beginning to happen in, in, in other areas as well. When you look at Western Africa or Southern Africa, 
I mean, granted, small, you know, economically small areas, but uh, um, or smaller players, but you know, they, they uh, these 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 international technology investors, they you know they they have to look further afield to get the returns they're looking at. Um, and uh, I think that's just natural, you know, over time uh, that there is some kind of erosion of IRRs in the established markets. So they have yeah. to go and, and, and look beyond that. So I'm, I'm curious, um, as, as, a, as an investor uh, based out of Europe, what do you think is the most exciting, exciting development in our markets? Quite frankly, I think it's all the technology plays that um, that are somehow based on these really growing, not only awakening, because I know the average income is already fairly high, but the, the growing consumer spaces. Um, uh, there's still so much room um, for for innovative plays, um, and if if I had to if I had to look at particular areas in that space. Uh, that's where I would be looking at. Um, and um, uh, on another note, which is no, not technology related, I mean, one of the most successful um, investment strategies in the last 10, 15 years in Europe has been uh, the idea of industry roll-ups. You know, you, you bundle um, several players together. That's something I would look at in Egypt. That's something I would look at in Saudi. Uh, I think it's very exciting. It's To a certain extent, it's happening. We saw a big... Um, uh, dental care deal in, in Saudi, I think it was 10 days ago. Um, so that's also very exciting. And technology comes into that as well, because once you bundle these, 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 these players, obviously, and another way to make them more successful is to make them more technologically adapt. Um, yeah. And uh, that can be very, very interesting in the consumer space. Is that something that you've also seen maybe on your side? We bought five years ago, we bought four years ago. We bought a small company doing 3D visualizations for, you know, smaller craftspeople. You know, for people who will, you know, f who build in woods or so on, or w yeah. woods, wood materials. You know, now, um, you know, Salesforce, whoever is active in that space, or you know, whoever is there, uh, they will most likely for these smaller players, they will not have anything interesting. So what we do is we bought this player. And we added other players that are doing, you know, catering to other niche markets, like, you know, little, you know, like, like roofing, you know, uh, 3D yeah. visualizations and stuff that. Now, these are all these companies together, you know, uh, individually, maybe only doing a few million in, in annual sales, a little bit more, uh, highly profitable, but you bundle them together and suddenly you have a software company doing 10, 20, 30 million in EBITDA. Yeah. And you know where yeah. the valuations for these companies are. So that's exciting. Um, and, and also, you know, the, the, the interesting thing obviously is that you buy these smaller companies before you bundle them together at much lower valuations than you would sell them for uh, later on. So there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a huge multiple arbitrage on top of, um, uh, simply, you know, making them bigger, making them better, making them more efficient, making them, scale more um, so i think it's you know this 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 idea of a well executed industry roll-up strategy is probably one of the most attractive to, to to be found around at the moment generally i think the last year was a bit of an inflection point um maybe focusing a bit on tech across multiple industries so healthcare i know we mentioned a bit earlier 
I think e-commerce and generally retail, we're starting to see a lot more creative strategies around that. Um, E-pharma is another one. I think mental health, um, there hasn't been a lot of activity in that space, but I think maybe 2020 has sort of catalyzed uh, movement in that space. And I think that's, that's also going to be very interesting. And it's sort of going to play between telehealth and other offerings that we're starting to see emerge as well. Yes, I mean, mental health is extremely, and I forgot to mention that before, but it's extremely interesting because the reality is that also because of COVID, you know, you have a, a you have a huge push towards anything that's digital and that can be provided online. B, many more people have developed mental health issues um, uh, than, than, than there's probably ever been in the history of mankind. But the yeah. reality is that the provisioning of services to these people has been slow to adapt. And there's um, there's huge demand for that. And a lot, I mean, that's proven by now, a lot can be done online uh, in that space that really helps people. Yeah? And it uh, can be done in a much more efficient and cost-efficient way than ever before. So that's, that's you know... That's that's that, that's a wonderful you know thing to happen um, due to digitalization overall, and which also means that we have to be much much faster and in, in digitalization, and then then we probably thought before the advent of COVID. Absolutely, absolutely. I think the 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 healthcare system as a whole was perhaps built for maybe a bit of a different world, um, and is sort of struggling to adapt. But I think mental health is a particular area where the impact will be extremely tangible, um, kind of solving for a lack of supply of qualified psychologists or psychiatrists, uh, lack of access. I think sometimes it tends to be maybe a bit um, above the means of, of prospective patients. So that's a very interesting space for us to observe as well. Yeah, that's totally exciting. Florian, uh, we're out of time. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today, and I hope that we'll be seeing you soon. Well, thank you very much um, and uh, hope to see you around and good luck with everything. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for taking the time.